0: You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. Music! I'm your host, Brent Simmons. Today's episode was recorded at the Swift by Northwest conference in Portland in October. It was a panel discussion, and the panelists were Kaya Thomas, Daniel Joukett, and Jamie Newberry. And so what follows is not your typical The Omni show, but I hope you enjoy it. What I did in advance was email the panelists and ask them if they have any topics that they feel very strongly about, uh, either positively or negatively or both. Uh, And I expected stuff about Swift generics or whatever, but no, it was entirely different. Actually, I wasn't expecting anything about Swift. But very, very roughly, Kaya was interested in topics about representation. Daniel was interested in topics about democracy and decency online. And Jamie interested in things about inspiring, especially inspiring kids. Now, there's an awful lot of overlap between all these things. But I want to get started by talking to Kaya Thomas, who works at Slack, correct? Everyone loves Slack. Round of applause for Slack. And Kaya has made uh, something called We Read Two, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. So I, in 2014, created an app called We Read Two, which is a mobile directory of children and young adult books written by authors of color. And the background story, really, in creating We Read Two, was that I've always been an avid reader, but. Growing up, you know, going to the library and in the bookstores, I felt a lot of times that the books that I was reading didn't represent me, or I was never mentioned, and there was no characters that were mentioned to look like me or be like me, and it started to really affect me so that when I actually started to learn how to code, I thought, wait, what if I could create some type of easy resource where it's... You're able to find these books, right, of kids of all different types of backgrounds. So whether they're black, Latino, Native American, Asian, all types of backgrounds. And they're written by the authors of those same cultures. So that was really important to me. And so I've been working on that for the last couple of years. And it's been great to talk to not only parents but librarians and educators who have been able to use the app to expand their classroom libraries and community libraries so that everyone can be exposed to more diverse books.
0: Oh, that's really awesome and your app was featured in the app store at one point uh, that must have been super rewarding very cool a lot of publicity all at once.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, that. So that was in February and when that happened I got Thirteen thousand downloads. Wow! Like that week, <laughs> um, before I had like fifty or sixty thousand over the years, but it was like I got a huge chunk over mm-hmm. the one week after being featured in the App Store. So,
0: really cool. oh, that's really cool. This segues a little bit into one of Daniel's issues. So Daniel is very interested in the democratization of tech, and yet here we are working on iOS and Macs, which are not necessarily the most democratic platforms. They are you know, we keep seeing prices go up and up and up, whereas Android phones, for instance, cost less. So Daniel, what can you say about that? And
2: the main thing that strikes me is just, you know, there's this kind of rift between the ways that I view the merits of Apple products. And uh, you know, I, I think in their own way, they're like setting standards that are then imitated by cheaper, more accessible things. So like, it is it, possible for me to sort of you know keep using my $1,000 iPhone and say, well, eventually everybody's going to get something like this. Um, and I think that's a very, it's, it, in some ways that's accurate, but it could also be me just sort of like pasting over the fact that I'm uncomfortable with this um, extremely inaccessible technology that I've backed my entire life. I've put my entire career into supporting a company that makes stuff that the vast majority of people on the planet cannot buy new anyway, and um, I just think that's kind of an interesting opportunity for all of us to think about. Like, well, I mean, all of us in this room, I think, are similar to me. Um, at least more invested in Apple than the average person, right? And uh, sure. so we, I think, we, it's, we owe it to ourselves to just kind of ask if Apple's is Apple working to make technology that is accessible to all not not in an accessibility way but in a you know financial sense are they and if they're not is there anything we can do to help expand that and i've often thought like i don't know i I guess i sort of like fantasize about there being like you know the 99 nine dollar iphone or something that's Hmm. that's you know it's old but it would still be awesome for a lot of people i guess that's about as far as i've gone with it in Uh in my thinking so far
0: so um Apple has sold how many iPhones?
2: What is it, a billion? I don't know. Right, right. Yeah.
0: So, yes, it's not the most democratic platform, but a billion is a pretty large number, right?
2: A a billion Uh, phones, but like one million people. (laughs) Because <laughs> we,
0: we all upgrade every thousand seconds or whatever There's,
2: There are so many uh, undemocratized iPhones <laughs> Six, true. $600 iPhones sitting in, in drawers collecting dust right? That's
0: true, I think I've got all of them <laughs> <laughs> the
2: forced upgrade thing and the like, yeah. reduced battery life over time you have to
3: upgrade. Like oh yeah. I don't yeah. want to get my kids I, I do have iPhones for my kids, but I don't want to get them new ones. They don't take care of it. They don't appreciate it. Like I but they're like the battery life doesn't last and then mm-hmm. I'm like, oh right. that's a but you bring up such a I mean
2: such a an important point. So I think it's just for me it's just kind of like that's something just to stew on and think i mean like cuz cuz to be honest i've never had it uh a, i've never been attracted to android but you got to hand it to android they are accessible at all levels of you know not obviously there are people many people who can't even afford the cheapest android phone but as far as like the tech market goes android covers the entire spectrum from dirt cheap to premium like you got this what pixel 3 Kind of, a, mm-hmm. kind of like a premium version of an iPhone 10 or, you know, approximate. I just think that's interesting. And I, I mean, it works really well for Apple's marketing and branding and their, their, their image to not be in the budget market at all. But we have to sort of like accept that that's like that's our lot. That's like who we who we threw in with.
0: Yeah. Right. How, how many people here do Android development? A few. Substantial. Uh, how many people do or have done web development? Yeah, okay. How many people here would say, I've pretty much just done Apple stuff and that's all I'm ever going to do?
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: a, few, a few of them, too. <laughs> I'm mostly in that camp, though I've done some web and even a little Windows 15 years ago. Forgive me. <laughs> so, WeRead2 is also a web app or?
1: Android. So, there's Android? iOS and Android. Yeah, okay. there's no web component. But yeah, I, I worked with someone to do the Android version. I didn't do that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought about it a lot because the Android version just came out um, about a year and a half ago, almost nearly two years ago. Um, and so I had the iOS version out for two to three years. And a lot of folks, you know, were like, well, this is great. We want an Android version. And that's something I thought about a lot, too, because it's like this is supposed to be a resource, right? right community yeah. resource, but it's only on iPhones, right? Which, like mm-hmm. you said, it's... Is a barrier. So I'm like, I'm really glad now there's an Android version to kind of combat that. But yeah, I I agree. It's something I think about a lot because the the hardware is not as accessible um, to so many.
0: Right. Now, picture this is just an online ordering thing, basically, right? So anybody can get to it.
3: Anybody can get to it. But it's interesting because it is a topic I think about in this exact capacity because our product, we have... We have shirts and dresses, and they're 50 bucks. And, you know, I know that that's not accessible to everybody. Now, on the contrast, when we started this idea, you know, the first dress I made, I spent three days and 12 hours, and I sewed mm. all of these pieces together. It was 100 dollars in fabric and materials. And, you know, when we looked at that idea, it, it wasn't scalable at an accessible. We would have to charge, like, $300 a dress or or outsource overseas children to make it, you know, and that wasn't something we were interested in. Imagine that scandal. So like we thought, how can we do this? Yeah. Right. Like, so how can we do this, um, in a way that's as accessible as we can make it and still build a small business. And so we did that and we're at $50, $49 plus shipping and, um, per product, but it's also, it's, it's like this magical experience. So that's, it's it's not just a shirt or, or a dress, you know? Right, yeah. And it's, on one hand, it's a little bit easy to justify it in that way. Because, the I mean, when you see those reactions and, the like, these kids are like, oh, it's the dress I made! You know, you see these video reactions that parents send us and stuff, and it's just like, oh, my God, that's exactly what we wanted to capture. But we want it to be accessible for more people. We want to reach urban schools. And we want to reach, you know, we want every child has an imagination to share, not just parent children with parents who can afford a $50 dress or shirt. And it kills me. We're working on that. We are working. This Hmm. year has been the year of trying to bring our costs down, bringing our manufacturing in house. So we're working on it, but it's man, it's a big, it's a big task sometimes.
0: When you were starting this company, how much, how strong was that aspect of I will be inspiring young people to like make things that then become real, and like you're thinking that might affect their their future lives and the way yeah. they think about things. Was that a big part of
3: why everything. you did this? It is it is the why. Um, when when I made so just like a little overview of the story, I made this dress for my daughter. I was working from home. It was Christmas break. She brings me this picture, this rainbow dress that she drew. She's super proud of it. I'm like, you know, I think we could make that. And I have like 4-H level sewing skills, a little sewing machine in the back (laughs) that I bust out once in a while to stitch some things. But, you know, and so like, so we made it, we spent some time together, we made it, we had the cats helped and sat on everything the whole time. You know, it was just like, can't make anything without cats. (laughs) (laughs) This is a real cool experience. And, um, but here was the moment, right? Like like I put this on her and I was going to finish it up a little more, but I needed to see how it was fitting. So I like, I put the dress on her and she she goes, I'm wearing my imagination. And it was just like oh, that moment, you know, and it wasn't that moment that we said, we've got a business. It wasn't that it took like three months of her wearing it and having to peel it off her body to wash it and not be that kid. Um, you know, just, but like, it was just this, that moment though. So, Everywhere we went, people were like, Oh my gosh, where did you get that? And she's like, I designed it with my mind. And it was just amazing, right? So my boyfriend was like, You've got something here. You should do something with this. And I said, I'm not sewing for dozens of kids or hundreds or whatever. Not going to do it. Um, And we just let it soak for a while. And Ken came back and he said, What if they actually wore? the drawing, rather than trying to recreate the drawing. And and then he came up with the concept of this coloring sheet. You just print out a coloring sheet, they color it, and what they put on that coloring sheet is exactly what they get. Exactly. We don't cut things off. We don't edit it. We don't alter it. It's their imagination. They design it. And, like, yes, that was it. It was that magic. And teaching so them they can have an idea and bring it into the world, mm-hmm. that's what I want my kids to know. I want them to see like, look, we had an idea and we made it a company. We had an idea, we made a dress. Like, we, You can bring ideas out into the world. And if they learn that now, what will they accomplish when they're older?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that goes a lot to, to what you're doing with, with your directory. I mean, young people hopefully are inspired to write their own books or or do whatever. Um,
1: Exactly. And that's one of the reasons it's important to me too, that the authors are also from the cultural backgrounds that they're writing about because then the kids can see is like not only is, you know, this someone in this book is like me, the author is as well. And like I have stories inside of me and I can get those out and, and get them out to the world, you know, just like you're saying. I I, I love that so much. I love that so much.
0: So Daniel, have you inspired any kids?
2: <laughs> are they are they all blogging now? I think I have to go now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you showed some uh, cool drawings today in your uh, oh right, well I, I like, inspired. Oh, I guess I've inspired my,
2: my I only inspire my own kids. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta start. Something. You know what? I, you know I've done a few things. I uh, you know on that on that topic, another really cool um, thing that I participated in that I really encourage everybody to get involved with is Hour of Code. Um, So like just within my community, I I, um, participate with Hour of Code at the elementary school level. Fascinating to see what kids do. It's probably, you know, similar to the reaction you probably get, Jamie, seeing all the art come in from these kids. It's just fascinating to see kids who often have never coded anything before. And then like 15 minutes later, they're like doing like, you know, loop loop drawing routines with this stuff that's on, you know, Hour of Code. Uh, I think it, I think that what you're getting at and what Kaya and Jamie are both getting at is, and it might be kind of the antidote to what I'm getting at with the, you know, guilt, shame of Apple involvement is, on the other hand, you know, like... Um, the, so Apple's t- technology is, is inaccessible, but a lot of times I think schools do have them. And then in the context of the schools, they're accessible to everybody who's at the school. And so um, like one of the things I, I was really kind of charmed by, too, speaking of kids, is um, I volunteer in the library at my kids' elementary school, and they use iPads. So cool. that they, they use um, the movie trailer feature. Of iPad, is it iMovie. I guess it's part of iMovie. Um, it has like a template for making movie trailers. It's like in a world, you know. And and uh, the I didn't kids, that. That cool. They just the kids. Um, they just this, this librarian just adapted it so all the kids every year make a um, book trailer of like the you know. I live in Massachusetts. They make a book trailer for one of the award nominees for the state. Um, you know, youth youth author uh, thing. And I remember seeing these kids do that. And this is something you would never get from an Android tablet. You would never get that level of like that magic thing that Apple does where they give you just enough tools and just enough of a head start that you feel like some kind of creative genius just mm-hmm. by, by following a few steps. And the kids, you know, they put in, you know, produced by boogers, you know. And it's like, <laughs> it's like that, is their, that is their joy in life. And it's all just in, empowered by these iPads. It, as it happens, are available there for everybody.
3: I think that that the operative there was the tools. It's like you Mm -hmm. create these tools that give people the ability to do magical things. And it's like that's a it's an important role. And I think we all possess the power to do that in, in different ways. Everybody in this room, we're making stuff. We have the ability to make tools that kids use and and like, and I, I mean, maybe this is very aspirational, but they can change the world. Kids, our futures are in their hands, you know? And I just, I feel like we have so much possibility there to, to enable them to make things better.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it is worth remembering though, that even adults could be inspired and learn no. to make things and change That's the world Adults are a lost cause. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's
3: too, too late. late. It's too
0: late, too late for adults. <laughs> You're all a lost cause. Uh, does anyone in, in here write uh, software for kids? Yeah? A few hands. Yeah, uh, for what, girls. Ke- Kelly, what do you do? <laughs> the podcast is. I'm an organization called
3: AppCamp for Girls, which is iOS development to girls and children's interaction with students who <laughs> are going to
1: the
0: AFM. Cool, awesome. Round of applause for that.
1: You wanna come hear about
0: how we built at Pitt. Awesome, cool. So stay tuned for that later. Uh, were there other hands about the software for kids that I missed?
2: I think you should give people the mic when they talk if they do talk.
0: I probably should give people the mic instead of making them. Because
2: well, otherwise you're not gonna have a you're not gonna have a great podcast, my friend.
0: Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another another topic and and I think this could be a little controversial, and maybe not. Uh, Daniel was interested in the fact that online, people should actually type out the word Y-O-U instead of just using you. In other words...
2: This is my cause!
0: <laughs> this is where we get to make fun of Daniel. Um, so, But it was beyond that, too. It was also about respect and, and civility and, yeah, those two things. Now, the problem with calling for respect and civility, is that that very call can itself be weaponized, right? So sometimes, you have to say a truth that is rude, and maybe that has to be spoken very loudly and in a uncivil way, but it needs to be said. Like, a simple example is, if someone's hitting me, and I want them to stop, I'm gonna say, hey, stop hitting me, and if they continue, I'm gonna be less and less civil right you know if you're being hurt you're going to yell about it you're going to possibly use uncivil words nevertheless in general i think daniel argues that civility online respect are good and missing things often missing things
2: well well, i think what's interesting is i think everybody would agree if you just ask should you be civil and should you respect people well all the civil and respectful people would think so and would agree with that. But I think what's interesting to me, it, when I say, when I, I I was kind of, I used the letter U as U as, a, as an example because it's one of those things, I get it. Some people, it's just kind of like part of their colloquial chat speak. That's just how they type it. And they've been in the habit of typing it that way for a long time. But a lot of times I see it used, and I think it's being used in a way to dehumanize the person that's being spoken to. And so it's one example where I think, you can see if you look on, something horrible like Twitter, um, you can see the spectrum of, you know, respectful to disrespectful speech. And very, very rarely is hugely disrespectful speech fully spelled out and punctuated. And so I think, you know, (laughs) you you get an association with disrespectful speech when, so if, if your thing is to say, you you wrong, letter U wrong with, or something. With it, eight explanation exploration Right, points. Right. It's like it's just it comes across as like you're to me, so again I want to reiterate, I think that there are two uses of it. And one of them is I don't I never want to type that way ever. I never do and I never will. But I get it, some people like it and they think it's cute or they think it's just more playful, less formal, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I think um though that if people made more of an effort to be to to communicate with fully spelled words and punctuation, I think it might come across as less abrasive and less. Um, people might just be more respectful when they when they write that way, and I just think that's interesting because we have a lot of problems. and In a way, I'm laughing at this being a topic because it's kind of the least of all possible problems, whether you spell out the letter the word "you" or not. But um, to me, it, it reflects a kind of lack of care that is associated with a lack of care for the other people involved.
0: That's, That's fair. Kaya, you're a writer. Um, do you have strong feelings about, about this subject?
1: I, I think it's really interesting. I, I do agree that like, when you look at hate speech or or disrespectful things like on social media platforms like twitter oftentimes they're they're not like using punctuation or correct spelling but when you talk about the other example of the like colloquial Colloquial, um i think about like aim like throwback to aim and and that kind of Mm -hmm. chat chat speak and like how i grew up using like those type of things um but i don't personally type like that like you know, on my Twitter or anything like that. I do think that there is a, a level of care that can go into the conversations that you have online. But I think it, I don't know if it's something that we can expect at this point, just because the, the way social media is and, and the, the growth of the platforms, I think that there is a lack of thought that sometimes that goes into a lot of the, the conversations or things that people put out there. So I don't know if we will ever get the reverse where everyone's... You
3: know. Not to derail totally, but where where is your uh, t- your stance on
2: emojis? Oh, I love emojis because that's just, just <laughs> a form of respect. <laughs> <laughs> um, Depending on the emoji. But, you know, um, on that note, it comes back to the kids again, because we've got to teach these kids to spell out the letter. The, the word. <laughs> <laughs> right.
3: We should have a parenting conversation. Right, right. I, I feel very much that way with, with my kids. I, I'm like, you can do that once you've proven to me you know how to spell the word. Then you can communicate like that with your friends. That's fine. But you have to prove to me that you know how to spell first. That was my policy.
0: That seems fair. <laughs> or are we moving toward an Egyptian hieroglyph? Glyphic system, right? We won't have to spell at all.
1: I mean, sometimes with emojis, like people type out sentences in emojis, and I'm like, what is What is that? It's mean? Like a rebus, like, yeah. Yeah, like maybe. And sometimes they are
2: disrespectful, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, we had some questions. I'll, I'll move back this away. Over here was one. Hi.
3: Okay, I have, uh, I want to be a devil's advocate for a second, and I'll preface this by
0: saying I agree with everything you're saying about um, being respectful, right? But as a devil's advocate, who are we as adults to say what the kids growing up should think is disrespectful? If they don't think that using the letter U is disrespectful, why should we be teaching them that that's disrespectful and not allowing them to develop their own culture and not be hampered by their own fear of what other people are thinking that they're speaking when they already have this uh, like confidence and lack of fear?
1: So I don't. <laughs> that's a that's a, a great a, a great question. I don't have kids, I'll preface with that. Um, but yeah. thinking, I'm thinking back to I think that there is a, a certain thing where you know adults telling kids, oh, you shouldn't do that way or you shouldn't you know write that way. But I also think that. When I was on AIM and stuff like that, the way I would type there, I would never type that to my mom or like to any other adult. So I think it's like a time and place thing, knowing when things are appropriate and when it's not. I don't think that we're in any place to say, like you shouldn't talk with your friends like that, or you shouldn't, in your comfortable, safe spaces when you're talking with other people your age, You shouldn't talk like that. I think that's, you know, whatever kind of culture they create together is that's them. But I think that it's still okay to say, you know, when you're having a professional conversation or with your teachers or with other adults, you don't do that.
3: I think there's a really good point there. I mean, like in what you're saying, like my own approach to parenting is often that way. It's like, who, who am I, you know, like we try to teach our kids to do, you know, the way we were taught in a lot of ways. And I, I really try to hold myself back from that in a lot of ways because I don't want to limit them with my limitations. I want them to do better and be better. And and maybe I learn from that. I see it a lot with my company, parents that try, try to, help their kids with the designs and they it's one of those things that i'm like who are you to decide if this is good art or bad art? You're just filtering it with your grown-up brain, and you're ruining it, you know? And and I I just I feel like I really relate to what you're saying. I have such strong feelings about good grammar and, you know, proper grammar and spelling and, and all of that, and I want my kids to have that. But at the same time, I, I feel like I really hear what you're saying, and, like, maybe, maybe we need to let go a little more and see what happens out of it. I don't know if that's what
2: you're saying. I, th- I think one thing to keep in mind. I think it's a really great point. But the, what struck me is when you ask, um, "Shouldn't we let kids just like invent their own values?" They, of course, they they are totally entitled. But I think there's no getting away from, with humanity, we are always participating in multiple generations of society. And there's just we can't. we you know, we could we could throw all the kids on an island and let it be like Lord of the Flies or something. But every kid is going to grow up and have in them a combination of values that were instilled in them by society, by their family, by their friends, and probably, frankly, just stuff that they they came up with themselves, you know? And I'm, we're all examples of that up here saying how we feel about things. You all have things that you feel strongly about. Who are we to tell the kids what to think or how to value things? Well, we're the only people around who can, because to whatever extent society and culture needs some like elders pass down values to youngers, we're the ones. So at least, you know, as a 43 year old one, now I'm I'm of course living both. I'm taking values still from people more, uh, you know, senior than me and I'm passing values down. And even, you know, I am a parent, I have a 10 year old and a six year old. It happens at the 10 year old to six year old level too. 10 year old is passing values down to the six year old. Sometimes the six year old is passing values up to be honest, but you know um nobody gets to just like invent their own value system and have that be the ultimate authority at least they don't get to do that and get along in our society
1: yeah like to piggyback off that i think that's like such a great point because i think it does a disservice to them to not teach them what society values in some way or have them a- aware of that because even if we said okay you can use you and all these different type of grammatical things you want if they still go to school or they're in society in other ways, it's not going to be acceptable, right? So I think you have to manage both. I love I love that. It's like a, a thing in our household is like
3: I want you to know the rules. And that this is my practice as a designer as well, but know the rules so that you know when it's appropriate to break the rules. That was just how we live. And see oh, got,
0: got some more questions here. Uh, I wanna get to oh, yeah, more okay.
4: questions.
0: There was one down this way? Yeah. Hey, so um, with regards to the
4: whole you versus you thing, so uh, I'm actually dyslexic, so I have a lot of problems with arguments about using proper grammar and um, using misspelling as a sign of disrespect. I,
2: you know, I, I have friends who have, you know, heard data scientists who have PhDs in statistics and people read their writing and think, you know, you're not educated yeah um and so it can be a very troubling. I think what you're saying, I don't think that is what you're saying. I think there's
4: definitely a correlation between you know misspelling and how much time someone gave to reflect on what they wrote. you know, but I do think it's a slippery slope when people start reading other people's writing and judge their ability to write as a sign of their intelligence because that doesn't correlate as well as people think.
2: I think that's a really, really good point, and I did not consider that at all when I made this suggestion Um, and what you you bringing it up, I think is really important. And it also reminds me at the core here, we have this situation where as a society, we deal with people and we pick up cues from people and we make assumptions about what other people's intentions are. Like you said, what their intelligence level is, maybe how, how, um, how much they care about what they're doing or how they're expressing it. And what you say reminds me, of course, you know, there's people also like with all kinds of different personalities, their brains function in different ways that, Cause them to communicate with others in ways that would be misperceived as hostile or, you know, antisocial. So what you say is really good food for thought. Um, I think it's a good balance to for those people like me. I, I I have a reputation kind of like of being up on my high horse about some of these things. And no. it's pro- and it's probably something I should I should consider. Um, but what you say, the feedback that you give on this particular subject reminds me that. I think everybody has an equal obligation to do the best they can to respectfully communicate with people and then on the flip side everybody has a responsibility to assume the best intentions and to tr- and to and to consider you know the, the 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 wide variety of things that might be going into somebody behaving the way that they are or communicating the way that they are so maybe that's the maybe that's the best compromise we can get it
0: uh, looks like Several questions here. We'll pass it to Arik first. I definitely
5: feel like people trying to be respectful and, and civil is, a, is in general a good thing. But I did want to mention kind of a, a similar alternate perspective to the dyslexia point is that um, not every, that um, using different spellings has been used by minority communities as well for various reasons. And in some cases, as a political statement, in some cases, just as a cultural statement. And The proper use of, of a language can very easily be weaponized to say, like, to lead to lack of opportunities, uh, code switching and things like that and having to learn two languages in your own country and things like that. So, you know, I think it's harder online, obviously, because to your point, like, it really can be very hard to tell and to separate your own, whatever you bring to the table when you're reading something, to separate that from whatever the person was bringing to the table. But I think that I would lean more heavily personally on the idea of what you said about trying to be respectful and trying to be civil rather than enforcing a specific usage pattern. There's also immigrants. I mean, there's just so many reasons that someone spells something in a different way or so many ways people communicate and you get situations where people are feel, people feel threatened or people feel attacked by stuff that was totally harmless and, and would be understood by someone else in a completely different way. I I just think it's useful to remember those things.
2: That's a really good reminder too.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. To speak on that, I, I think it's a, um, important, thing to broach and like personally I think when you mention code switching I mean that's something that I I do every day of my life and I think oftentimes you learn ways you speak at home or in your community um, and the ways that you like speak in a professional sense or you speak in an academic sense are very different and I think that when you oftentimes you like as being someone a person of color I know how to speak with certain people in certain ways. It shouldn't have to be that way, but that's the way it is. And I think in terms of thinking about, you know, how we judge people, how they speak. I do it. I do it as well. Like everybody does it, you know, and you read something and you make all of these assumptions about the person from how they how they spoke to you, whether it's because like they don't have, English is not their first language or they, the way they learn English is different than you and everything. We all like make these assumptions about people. But I think the point that you made is just giving everyone the respect they deserve. So like, even though you have your biases and you have your assumptions, not bringing that out. Right. And not like saying, well, I read that and I'm making this judgment. So I'm going to treat them this way. Like, still bringing them with respect and treating them with respect regardless of whatever your own biases and judgments are versus what they said.
3: That'd be so awesome if everyone did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Kumbaya. <laughs>
0: there, were, there were more hands over here? Yeah.
6: So I have three little things. Uh, I have a friend who for 15, 16 years was an editor with the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and she said there was this big debate in the dictionary community about being prescriptivist where you tell everybody how they should speak versus descriptivist where you basically say the language is the language and it rolls along, you know, just picking up stuff along the way. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, number two, I do sometimes weaponize intentional misspellings. I mean, I think the ultimate example of this is when you, somebody has something fulminating about something and you just go you mad bro and the third thing i want to talk about is how do we deal with life when we get to a place where people just communicate with gifts
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> first we have to agree how to pronounce that word <laughs> ah. all right who, who's... I, I found that very disrespectful
1: <laughs>
0: who in here says jiff all right and everyone else says GIF, right? Because that's correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah, GIF.
1: I'm sorry, <laughs> GIF. Yeah, <laughs> Prescriptivist GIF. versus
0: like, descriptivist.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I remember seeing. I think it was Merriam-Webster It said like the. Didn't they say like the word of the year was like an emoji? Am I not? Some it was something like that. Uh, I think that's really really interesting when dictionaries come into play because it's like a dictionary is like what you would think is like you know mm-hmm. the judgment of the language but now that they said a, a lot of times i see like merriam webster on twitter like they're pretty funny yeah. <laughs> they're even they're even yeah. political i mean yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: they're so. even at the gas pump are they <laughs> the little screens <laughs> yeah. anyway, who says we're, we're in not a
0: literate day. society
3: yep
0: <laughs> um do we have more questions yeah we do excellent We don't have to talk about the letter U
2: versus U the whole time, but you can just to make Daniel (laughs) uncomfortable. (laughs) It's a good topic. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree that the ship has sailed on a lot of this. Um, It makes me cringe when I see what I read online, but you know, and what my kids say. I think a more valuable lesson to pass on at this point is that what you say is essentially permanent from now on. You know, I grew up saying all my stupid stuff on Usenet and bulletin boards. That's gone, thank God. <laughs> but now, if you
4: say it, it's likely there forever, and you got to teach your kids to be real
2: careful about it before they say something.
0: That's a good point. Um, Facebook's going to know everything about everybody forever.
2: I, I think an interesting, uh, you know, carryover from that is the the question of what is considered shameful behavior. I think will necessarily because of that, and it already has shifted in a way that you know, there's so much evidence out there of shameful behavior to some extent or other because of what you described. It's all permanent, it's all out there. I don't think people, I mean, the stuff that's like commonplace that you'd be judged for having out there now, if it was out there 20 years ago, you'd probably be judged more harshly, you'd feel more embarrassed by it, et cetera. And it's just like as a, as a consequence of everything being out there and being permanent, I just don't because I mean, it's it's one of these things where it's like well you you can be embarrassed and ashamed by something if you're the one person out of 400 people who does it but if like 200 out of 400 people have stuff out there that's exhibiting the same behavior then um, I, th- I think that's going to be an interesting thing to see how much what what is the like future of being ashamed uh, I don't know
0: that could that's be a whole talk, talk. Yeah, the future talk. of shame <laughs> but <by> Daniel joked <laughs> uh,
4: more questions I think, yeah. Just wanted to point out that it's a room full of engineers, and we haven't proposed an engineering solution for this yet. Clearly, there's a software uh, translation opportunity here. It seems like communication is always going to be really challenging between people, and that's something that, at least until Neuralink comes out with some hardware solution for that, but maybe we can come up with software that can better maybe read back to the person writing possible interpretations of what they're saying and let them verify what they mean before it gets sent. Because like people have pointed out, maybe they're using the letter U in a way that they don't see as disrespectful, but the person who reads it does see it as disrespectful. And so there's a miscommunication there. It's not a, a, an intent of disrespect. It's just a, a miscommunication. So Siri's getting better at intense, Maybe we can work with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Apple has, on the accessibility point, you know, if you, if you are dyslexic, Apple has typing suggestions, right, to, to help you out with that. So there are not necessarily in terms of the respect aspect, adding the, that kind of sentiment into the suggestions, but there are some engineering solutions too. Mm-hmm. to think about that.
0: I, I wish there were a preference in my Twitter client. Uh, translate all these into right. re- the regular kind of English that I, <laughs> that I like.
2: We're going to have uh, Clippy giving us advice on <laughs> offending people. <laughs>
0: Uh, There was another hit. Yeah.
3: I'm a big fan of language being used properly and proper grammar and good spelling, but I don't feel any less disrespected if an obscene or threatening DM is spelled well. So, and that's the reality for a lot of women and people of color and I mean, on a daily basis. So I, I mean, incremental change happens. Small things that we can all do to improve respect in little ways matter, but A lot of us in this room have probably very different experiences online with regards to respect and civility. And so thinking about how that all interplays, I don't know. I don't know exactly what my point is, but I know what you're saying and I get it and I appreciate it. But at the same time, I'm like, it's kind of the least of my concerns.
0: It's the least of our concerns.
2: You and your you. I know. Well, I just want to point out. This is not my champion issue.
4: <laughs>
2: this is something that came to mind when uh, Brent emailed us. and um, We got a lot of conversations. It's a really going interesting. There. I know it is really interesting, the stuff that's come out of it. And I think that the stuff that's come out of it so far has um, been very provocative in a good way to make, to make those of us who maybe lean f- towards feeling the way I presented this think about it a little bit more carefully.
0: Cool. We've got more questions here going to Liz.
3: So you talked a lot about kids and raising kids, right? And I don't
1: have kids. So I was trying to think about how to bring it back to some of us who don't. And I think there's maybe a similar, maybe a different, I'll let you comment, opportunity with how we interact with people who are newer developers or people who are new to Mac and iOS software or coming from Objective-C to SWIFT or vice versa, so maybe you can talk about what opportunities or responsibilities we have there. If you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think that's a great, 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 great point to bring up. Uh, one thing, <clears throat> when we were, were emailing back and forth that's really important to me is how as engineers and the, with the skills that we have, how do we foster those skills to others? So not just kids, but you know everyone, because everyone has the opportunity to like learn how to program and figure out how to apply, you know, the technical knowledge to the things that they do in their life. Um, and I do think that we have a responsibility on how we approach that because I think that there are, you know, certain engineering communities that are really exclusive and it's really hard to become a part of it because of the language and jargon that's used. And so I think learning how to talk about technical topics and relay technical topics in layman's terms, right? In an understandable way is so important. And how, you know, how we talk about things, whether you're writing a blog post, there's so much information out there. It's similar to what you were saying in your talk, right? There's so many blogs. There's so much information and documentation. But when you're doing that, when you're getting that information out there, how do you do it? Is it accessible to folks who are just interested, right? Or do you have to be, you know, an expert? to just even read your blog posts. And so I think we do have a responsibility as engineers to make sure that how we talk about technology is not inaccessible to people who might be interested in it. Because, you know, I've been in, whether it's classes or, you know, reading information or going to a meetup, and you start off your talk by talking about all of this jargon and you just lost so many people in the audience, right? And so making sure that how you're actually talking about technical terms is accessible to people who might just be interested in it, right? It's like the same concept when if you went to school and you're in a class and the first day the professor's like, well, if you don't know this, you probably want to drop this class, right? It's like that, that weeding out culture. And I think a lot of that is in our community as engineers. like We want to weed people out, and it shouldn't be that way. We should try to make technology more accessible to folks who, they might be interested in it. They might have a bunch of apps on their phone, and they might want to know how to do that. How are apps made? Like, Why can't they know that, and why shouldn't they know that?
4: All right. Olaf, just historical perspective, and especially to uh, what Daniel's talking about, about um, the financial accessibility for Apple platforms. Apple has never been the cheapest, or that's never been a, an immediate goal for Apple, but it's always been a goal to make computing more personal and more accessible to everyone, not not for, you know, financial reasons. So I got to say, as long as we're focused on the mission of changing the world for the better, the tools we use, that's kind of an implementation detail. So Kaya, your, your app, increasing, you know, representation, Started out on iOS and, and people point to it and say, hey, that's a good idea. We got to spread it wider. We are a great platform for putting our stake in the ground of, hey, this is, this is a good thing. Let's start here and spread and change the world. Yeah. I love you all. <laughs> there's,
3: there's so much value in that. And I think, you know, if that's where we're starting, that's where we're starting. At least we're starting somewhere. And I, I do think, like, you know, even when we talked about the limitations of my own company, right? Like, we we were like, oh, it's $50. It's kind of expensive. But we had to start somewhere. We had to see, you know, let's see if this idea even works and if people really even want it. And is it worth putting more time and money into to then blow it out and make it more accessible yet. Sometimes you just have to start somewhere, and I think that's such a great point.
0: Hmm. And Apple can really lead by example. Like, for instance, the, yeah. the accessibility APIs and things built into the systems are, are awesome. Um, and, they, and privacy stuff, too. Uh, other platforms will and should pick those things up.
2: And in some respects, you know, the things that Apple does, although they're, they're expensive for the, pro- the, the main product service, sometimes their products... I'm not an expert in mean, the slightest on this, but it seems to me Apple has made a lot of accessibility tools extremely cheap compared to like the very custom solutions that were there before. It's like, you know, I, st- I sort of remember, um, I remember uh, I, I went to England once and stayed in a bed and breakfast, and the um, the manager w- was blind, and she had, beautifully funded by the British government, she had like a, a, a really extensive like computer setup, very custom thing. She told us it was like tens of thousands of dollars, I think, for this thing. And it's like, you know, over the years, it's gotten to the point now. It's like, I have an Apple Watch. This is a very expensive watch. And I think many people who use it for accessibility reasons, find it a very affordable accessibility device. And so there's, I think that's a great point that the ways in particular, um, that Apple's not only just accessibility in, you know, I, I love this about Apple that also accessibility, it's not a niche concern, right? It's like, Accessibility is for everybody is is part of apple's um attitude about it, and it's all the way from like very specific like ways to um, accommodate whatever physical um difficulties uh, uh, up to and including just like accommodating people's fear of computing right and like that's a different kind of it's you know it's part of what you were getting at, and that's something that nobody did before before yeah. Apple came along and they continue to do to do that in ways that Frankly, nobody seems to be getting the clue. Nobody else seems to get the message quite. And so kudos to Apple for that.
0: Apple's always been strong in education, too. It's been a constant theme. Was the question over we here? Was it you? No? Why is Android so cheap? Right, so Android may be inexpensive in one regard, but it is built on selling your data. And in some ways, that's more expensive than an iPhone, right, depending on how you value
2: your, your data.
0: Nevertheless, a lot of people don't just don't have that option. It's that or no phone.
2: I just I also think Android's cheap because its openness allows people, companies with all kinds of public images, to make devices and sell them. And you know, like the Google latest Google phone is not cheap. Um, it's Android, it steals your data. Well, I mean, uses it to help you. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> it's. Um, uh, you know the, th- the fact that there are cheap Android devices is specifically because there's not one company in charge of Android who is terrified of being associated with cheap products, and I think that's why we don't see more cheap. I mean, I mean the other the other angle of that is to make something cheap, it has to be inferior. I mean, usually and typically, the, the materials have to be not as nice as Apple's. They, The longevity, the durability, the the quality of whatever the metals are in there would be probably down to even like how good is the battery all has to be worse to get a cheaper product. So I think that part of it's just Apple doesn't want to make crap. And that's why we love them.
0: Well, uh, Apple, Apple's attitude there is, I think, inspirational, right? In the sense that we're, we're all craftspeople or artists even of a sort. And we all want to make stuff as good as that. And we should. We should all aspire to that. Ah, yeah,
6: just off of what Daniel was just saying, I think it used to be more true that Apple would have like a single product to satisfy a certain need, but I think now you can debate whether they have too many, but we just bought my mother in law a new iPad, and it was the the cheapest one, and you know it's not as good as this big old iPad Pro I have here, but, you know, it supports the pencil. It's lighter than any other iPad. It's really good. I think they've taken more of kind of the Mercedes-Benz model, where, yes, they're all more expensive than they could be, but, you know, Mercedes-Benz technologies start in the giant S-Class, and over time, they get down to the lowest-end one. So I think that might be more of what we're seeing, and kind of you see the same thing with iPhones. You know, you can buy two or three years ago's iPhone for comparatively inexpensive money. You know, or if you want, you can get the XS Max. But there's a range there that never used to be there.
3: Oh, it's like it's that that philosophy. They started somewhere, and now they're able to kind of expand the net. And it's you know they started with the iPhone, the first one, and then evolved it over time and yeah i think that that's that's kind of like what this gentleman was saying earlier it's like sometimes you know maybe it's not where we want it to be and we have greater aspirations of of spreading a wider net and reaching more people but at least we've started in a really positive direction and and it would be it would be unfortunate if we didn't acknowledge the progress and the, the the good stuff you know like don't forget what's good What's what's good? It's important to acknowledge what's good and what has come of the technology that's out there, and it's given a lot of people seeds to go then plant and see what what grows from it. Uh,
0: On that note, turns out we're over time, so I'd like a round of applause for Rob Napier. just so you guys can see what's going on. Oh, This has been the Capital One Radio Hour.
2: <laughs>
0: uh. All right. Uh, a round of applause for Kaya, please. <laughs> for Daniel. <laughs> and for Jamie. <laughs> and for yourselves. Thank you so much. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed this discussion that was recorded at the Swift by Northwest conference. I'd like to thank the Klein family and everybody for putting this on and for all the attendees and people asking questions and so on. I'd also like to thank our intrepid producer, Mark Bosco. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. And especially, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you music.